Again, good morning. Maybe you remember that scene in Monsters, Inc., where the guy comes out of the door and there's a sock on his back and suddenly hazmat guys show up and shave him. <clears throat> I kind of feel like if I cough right now, that might happen. So I've been stifling my, my, my little cough that Laura's like, now they think you have corona. No, no corona. Maybe I have corona. I don't know. Let that comfort you this morning. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what in the world's going on here? What do you say, Tim? That's why you're wearing your mask. <laughs> okay. So, the whole flow of things seems off today a little bit. It's a little weird. I'm used to a different way of coming up here. Anyway, um, we're in Luke chapter 14 today. So, if you've got your Bible, you've got a phone, something like that, go ahead and make your way over to Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> now, if you've been tracking with us through Luke, you, you know that we are seeing Jesus over and over again, uh, eating with these Pharisees. And, and the reason we're seeing this is because uh, it was really common for, for the Jews, not just the Pharisees, all the Jews, right, um, to have this meal. They'd gather together for the absolute best meal of the week on the Sabbath, and they would invite people over, uh, and they did this after worshiping the Lord each week. And so I really think that's one of the few things that the Pharisees I see do, and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, most of the rest of it I wouldn't advise following. But anyway, so uh, for the Pharisees particularly I wouldn't advise this is the fact that they only invite those who are like the locally highfalutin people, prestigious people, uh, to come to these meals, and that's the way they, they function with them. So uh, we're going to see that in our passage, and let's just, let's just get towards the passage, or get to the passage right off the bat. Uh, as we do often, we're going to be reading in two segments, so the first six verses, and then we'll read the other bit in a little bit. Um, so follow along, verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, <clears throat> don't shave me, <clears throat> one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had droopsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it brings to our hearts, for the way it challenges both our thoughts and our ways of life, the way it gives wisdom to us. We thank you that it is a means of grace to us. Please soften our hearts this morning so that we'll see the beauty of Christ in this passage and so that we'll see our, our own pride. Not if we have pride, we know we do. But please reveal to our, our own hearts uh, what our pride is and teach us how to seek after humility in every realm of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, if you've been working with us through the chapters of Luke since the beginning, you're, you might have just heard this passage and thought, haven't we seen this before? This sounds so familiar. And, and the answer is yes, you've seen it before somewhat. It's a very similar thing. Uh, this is the third and the final time that we see Jesus healing someone on a Sabbath in the presence of the Pharisees. And so in some sense, it's going to seem a little familiar to you. Now, once again, in this passage, we're seeing that the Pharisees are kind of like the wily e. Coyote, uh, and they're trying to crap, 
trap. Did I say that? Trap. Chafe, chaff. Trap. I'm, I'm rusty. I've not had people in front of me in a long time. So anyway, they're trying to trap Jesus, and, and what they're trying to trap him into doing at this point is, is to violate what are their man-made laws, what are these, these, these rules that they have twisted into God's law and try to consider as if they're the same thing. And, and so they've set Jesus up with this setting, right? The, the, the host, you know, invites him into his house, and, and there's something in his head kind of like, hey, welcome to my house, Jesus, and oh, well, there happens to be a man with droopsy here who could be healed. Uh, it's a complete setup, right? Uh, now, droopsy is not a word we're familiar with. It is uh, a form of what we might know today as uh, edema, which is just this, this condition where fluid builds up in the body, and it might be uh, a face or a leg or a foot or something, and it swells or disforms in some regard. Uh, Whatever it is, we don't know where it is on this guy, but it would have been incredibly obvious to everyone there that that's, that's what's wrong with this man. Now, it's also not likely that this man was invited with any real genuine invite to the meal because the Pharisees don't do that sort of thing. And also uh, because after Jesus heals him, what's he do? He sends him away as if he wasn't part of this to begin with. And so Jesus sees the man with droopsies. And though the Pharisees are silently watching them, we, we know that Jesus must read their hearts because he responds to them. That's what our text says, right? He, he responds to them and he responds with this question. Uh, he asks them this, uh, all those who are gathered, he's asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And, and with that one question, Jesus flips the switch, right? Now they're in the trap. Now they have this catch-22 before them that they can't answer because they, they can't say yes to this because if they do, right, because their own rules forbid them from healing on the Sabbath, therefore they absolutely cannot do this. The, the one exception is a life-or-death situation. Man with droopsy, not a life-or-death situation. And they can't say no here or they're going to appear heartless, which is what they truly are. And, and so what has happened here is, is that their legalism has rendered them merciless and, and their pride has left them unwilling to even admit what, what is going on here, to admit the coldness of their own hearts. Now, Jesus knows God's word. That should go without saying. Uh, and he knows the law of God and he knows that God's law does not forbid healing on the Sabbath. And, and, and then we see the Pharisees, right? What, what is their response? No response. Nothing at all. Uh, to borrow from Abe Lincoln or Mark Twain or whoever actually said the original quote, uh, they might suppose that it is better to remain silent and be thought heartless than to speak and to remove all doubt. That's the situation they're in. Now, as a reminder to us, you're right, the scriptures teach us that the Sabbath was made for man made for mankind, made for us. It is for our good to give us joy, to give us uh, a wonderful time in worshiping the Lord, to give us rest and refreshment. But the Sabbath was never intended to keep us from doing good to others. That was never the intention. And that's the way they're using it here. So, <clears throat> so Jesus heals this man and what a sight you can imagine this healing might have been. Whatever his, his droopsy is, some swollen part of his body in a mere moment just transforms before them. Can you imagine it? It'd be like watching a little sapling of a tree grow into a mighty oak in, in just a few moments. And yet that's not the focus of the passage. We don't even get told how amazing that is for people. 
Afterwards, the man leaves, and then in verse 5, Jesus kind of piles on the Pharisees a bit further as he uh, really wants to confront their, their, their pride and, and their hardened hearts, and he asks them the second question. He asks, which of you, <clears throat> having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? A son or an ox, right? As if those are equal things. Uh, remember, though, the ox is <clears throat> not a pet. The ox is a uh, like farm equipment. It's basically your tractor, right, that you're going to use on your farm. It uh, <clears throat> was considered a highly valued thing they, they own. Uh, and, and so these two things aren't equal, but these people, uh, what he's pointing out is these people value, <clears throat> these people care about their possessions, they care about their children, but the poor man with droopsy, they don't care about, not at all. <clears throat> and so how many times have we seen Jesus do an act of mercy on the Sabbath at this point? You actually should be able to answer that. How many times has he done it? I just told you, right? Three. Yeah, you look questioning it. We already mentioned this, right? Three. That's how many times it's actually recorded in Scripture so that we know this. Now, I, I would expect that he's probably done it more than that because we're seeing that's the pattern of Jesus. That's the way that he's, he's working, right? He's, he, he's merciful every day of the week, including the Sabbath, not excluding the Sabbath. Which raises the question, how, how do we as the disciples of Jesus use the Lord's day in the way that he uses the Lord's day? Do we rest? Yes. Do we come and worship the Lord or meet online to worship the Lord? But what about mercy? Have you ever crossed your mind even? If you're anything like me, you, you probably have never sat down and thought, how do we, how do we spend the Lord's day like, like our Lord did? Yes, the rest, the worship, but how do we, how do we show mercy to others? Uh, it's not a common question, but, but consider this your assignment, your lunch question today, to actually ask that question. What would it look like? Can you think of anything? What might it be to, to show mercy on the Lord's day to someone? And, and to get you started, I want to share these words of Philip Ryken regarding this. He says, The Lord's day is for the healthy to show mercy to the sick by visiting them on their beds. It's for fathers to show mercy to their children by putting them at the top of their agenda. It's for families to show mercy to singles by welcoming them into their homes. And for the wealthy to show mercy to the poor by feeding them bread. It is a day for people who have Christ to show mercy to people who are still lost by giving them the gospel. The Lord's Day is for showing every compassion of Christ to every person in need just like Jesus. And what we see is kind of sad at the end of this because the, the Pharisees were silenced, but they were not changed. We don't see a change with them. And, and Jesus goes further to engage them with a parable afterwards. Now, before we read the parable, to understand this, you, you kind of need to know that these meals, as we said before, are hosted by the very wealthy in town, the very prestigious. Uh, only other distinguished people were invited to these meals. Uh, there was probably more than one table set up on the uh, very low to the ground. They were set up in a, a U-type shape uh, with the very middle is where the host, the host would sit, right in the very middle. And then the seats of honor were the seats next to the host. And the further you went around that corner to the, the outsides of the horseshoe, the further you were from honor to the lower places of, uh, of honor. Um, and so that's kind of the setting there. Now let's read it so that makes any sense to you there at all. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 7 of verse 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. 
lest someone more distinguished than, than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And when you will begin with shame to take the lowest place, but when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this idea, this, this being honored and avoiding shame, this is a common, almost universal human desire. So it's really not surprising that the Pharisees here, the men invited to this meal, seek after these places of honor. What is uh, happening here, though, is the way that Jesus watches them seek after this honor opens a door for Jesus to confront their self-righteousness, to confront their pride. Now, as I mentioned before, the the seats of honor were positioned so that uh, everyone else could see it, right? It it was such a way that it was was set up so that everyone could know if you are in these seats of honor. It's not unlike the wedding party, last time you were at a wedding reception, the the way that somehow they're always put in a position where everyone else can see the wedding party. Uh, So anyway, these Pharisees come into this place and they, they make their way towards these seats of honor as though they're teenage girls at a Taylor Swift concert sitting in general admission or something like that. They're just, this is where we need to be. We need to find a way to be there. Uh, If you can't picture that, maybe Black Friday at at Target, which, can you imagine Black Friday at Target this year? Six feet as we rush. I I don't know. Uh, Anyway, this sort of musical social chairs happens in our circles as well today. You, you know this. There's always the, the, the one guy in high school who is so desperate to be seen with the cool kids uh, that he just kind of rotates around them looking for a way to get in. Keaton, Keaton says it's Chloe, apparently. Um, Anyway, you're right, there's always that one guy, or there's that one guy in the office who's trying to befriend the boss, not because he happens to like the boss, but because this is some self-promotion, some way to move up that ladder, trying, trying to get close to, close to the boss. And, and at the heart of, of the Pharisees then, and at the heart of the situations we see where this is happening uh, today, pride is what's going on. Pride seems to come up in all aspects of our life. Pride's the reason we want the biggest cookie of the entire batch. We'll, we'll spend way too much time trying to determine which one that is. Even though we know it means that the next person's going to get a, a smaller cookie than we get, right? That's, that's pride at the heart. Pride's the reason we exaggerate our accomplishments when we tell stories, right? Pride's the reason we might bring up some story in the hopes that someone else is going to uh, publicly praise us as they get on board with this story or, or where we're the hero of the story. That's why we do these things. And it's, it's why the Pharisees are trying to get to this seat of honor because they want everyone to think, wow, they're, they're prestigious. Look at them sitting next to the host. They must know him, right? And so then Jesus speaks this parable. And it's a little weird. He's saying, you know, don't, don't rush to take those places of honor. Don't, don't sit yourself and demand that they be yours. And, and his reason is, is a little odd because he says, you're going to be embarrassed later, right? Like, that's not real effective. Uh, you're going to be humbled. Because at some point later, when the wedding host comes to you and says, hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, that's not your seat. Um, that's for my cousin. Could you maybe go find another one? And at that point, Jimmy's sitting in the least wanted seat in the place. That's all that's left. And so in Jesus, instead, Jesus is advising them, you know, take the lowest seat at the start uh, and wait for the host to come to you and move Jimmy and you can take his seat, right? That's kind of the basic idea here. Now, this is not Jesus just telling us, 
how to function in social environments. This is not just, you know, Jesus' version of how to win friends and influence people. That's not what's going on here. No, he's teaching something larger. He's making a theological point, which we're going to slowly get to. You, You see, in the last verse, though, Jesus phrases this parable as a proverb. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the point he's teaching right there. Which is very close to the Old Testament phrase or proverb. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now, lonely in spirit means humble. That's what it's getting at. Uh, Michael Gordon, who is our area coordinator for RUF and one of John Dunning's good friends shared a uh, story from his middle school days. It's a pretty great story. He says this, in the seventh grade, I placed third in the Georgia Farm Bureau essay contest. It was an accomplishment I was quite proud of. I found out about my accomplishment in between class periods, and thus when Miss Sam's class began, I felt compelled to tell all my classmates about the glory of my achievement. I began to boisterously proclaim my accomplishment in the, in the presence of my classmates, not realizing that the first and second place winners were in the same class with me. At the height of my boasting, Miss Sam's, turn, Miss Sam's turned to the first and the second place winners, Brett and Melissa, and congratulated both of them. Gordon then says, My teacher then proceeded to begin class with the audacity of not congratulating me. He continues, I could not allow such a slight of my honor to continue. I collected myself and then I spoke. Miss Sams, what about me? Aren't you going to congratulate me? And she looked him in the eye and and she says to Michael, you're doing a pretty good job of that yourself. Finally, Michael says, I was humiliated. I don't know if we have stories like that, but do you think back on your life? Can you recall any situations where you were demanding honor, respect? Maybe you're just trash-talking before some moment, only to be later humbled. I mean, you can see then that what Jesus is getting at, don't, don't pridefully put yourself into a position where you will be humbled. Instead, be humble. And so let me define humility for us, right? It's a broad term. We don't always know how to use it rightly. Uh, Humility is to know and embrace our lowliness before God and others so that we find freedom both from self-exaltation and self-infatuation. Now let me break that down for you just a little bit. Lowliness Lowliness is not self-deprecation, right? I am worthless, I am nothing, I'm a slur, a worm, and everything, you know. That's, that's not what lowliness is. Lowliness is, is how we live before God and how we live before others. Uh, to live lowly before God means that you recognize this, this, this creator-creature distinction. At the most basic level that, that God is the creator and I am a creature and that he has made, God has made me, he has made the world. And, and so at no point are we able to crease our eyebrows right at God and, and demand anything from him as if he owed it to us. Simply because he is God and I am not. And, and, and loneliness is, is not trying then, you know, loneliness before others is not trying to decide am I superior to them or not, right? And Maybe I'll pretend I'm less than them, even if I'm not. Uh, Lowliness is knowing that we both need Jesus. We are both low and need Jesus, regardless of of where we might find ourselves on that scale. Now, in in the definition of humility, I I said it's to know and embrace uh, our lowliness before God and others 
so that we find freedom from both self-exaltation and self-infatuation. Now, self-exaltation, this is the form of pride that you know, the one that you can see from 100 miles an hour, the guy who's, who's boasting, right? This is Michael uh, in the seventh grade uh, with his third place award. These are the people you, you just know are prideful. You know, when we're, when we're self-exalting, you know, in this way, somewhere deep down, our goal is to be the one who gets all the attention. Our, our goal is to get praise, and we might even, might even use some humble story in the hopes of being praised for our humility even, right? Uh, that we want to hear something like, wow, Caden, you know, or, or, or wow, Corey, you, you're so humble. I'm so impressed by your humility. And you're like, I know, what can I say? Right? That's, that's some form of self-exaltation there. Now, the other, form, uh, the other form of pride in our definition is self-infatuation. This, this form of pride is a little more sneaky because it starts with us thinking, maybe even saying, you know, I'm not smart, I'm not attractive, I'm not good at that, I'm not talented. And, and, and we do this because we, we lack self-confidence. And, and, and because what we're doing really just, you know, it feels like, like the opposite of pride when we do this. It seems like it's the opposite of pride. And, and so we're easy to just conclude, I must be humble because... I'm not self-exalting like that guy. But it's not humility. Self-infatuation is just a different strain of pride. It's still all about me. It's still wanting someone to come in and say, no, you really are great. You, you don't stink of that. You're amazing. Right? That's what's happening here. And so then if we want to grow into humility, here's what we need to do. We need to plant the seed of true knowledge. Right knowledge. Right heart-level knowledge of self and right heart-level knowledge of, of who God is. You see, if you, if you really know yourself, like really know yourself, you know your heart, you know your thoughts, you know your deeds, you know your weakness, if you know yourself well, and if you really know God, if you know his holiness and his majesty, and you know his infinite sovereignty and his unmerited mercy, if, if you know God, if those two realities, right, knowing self and knowing God, those are the seed for humility, and, and it is absolutely freeing. H Hannah Anderson wrote, pride both overestimates our abilities and underestimates God. And that's what we're moving towards, right? To know that. Um, so how do we cultivate humility today? And simply put, we, we know our smallness and we know God's greatness. You, you ever notice in, in Scripture, I don't know if you ever tried to work through it in any chronological order before, you ever notice though that, that Paul gets more lowly the older he, he gets, 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, for, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, right? The, the least of the apostles, but, but that's what, 12 people? You might debate me to 13, but I still think 12 at this point. Um, either way, though, that's a small group, so maybe you're better than everyone else, Paul, still. And, and then you get to Ephesians 3.8, and he says, I am the very least of all the saints, Right? So now the group's gotten bigger and, and it's all those whose faith are in Jesus Christ and, and, and yet there are people outside of Christ who maybe he's better to, better than. And, and then late in his life, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Okay, that's, that's pretty low, Paul. Just is. And listen, this isn't false humility in him. This isn't self-infatuation. It isn't some Eeyore, woe is me kind of statement by Paul. It's, it's, 
It's this. It's that the older we get, the better we typically know ourselves. And if we're walking with the Lord, we begin to see these nuanced sins in our lives that we didn't notice in our younger years. I'm not the only one who experiences that, am I? Like, um, I don't know. We've been playing a, or not playing, we've been doing a number of puzzles these last nine weeks at this point. Uh, And I've noticed that when we first put the puzzles out, I, I noticed that there's always that, you know, that 300 of these are all blue and they look the exact same and you think there's no way we're ever going to finish this and then as you go through the puzzle slowly you start to notice these little nuances and ways to tell them apart that you never saw before. My, my own life's been similar that way. The longer I, I walk with the Lord the, the more I notice less obvious sins in my life that maybe I didn't notice before and the, uh, the truth is really you know even with Paul here that Paul had more reason to boast in his sanctification at the later stages of his life and, and most of us see Paul and think you got to be kidding me. You can't possibly consider yourself the, you know, the lowest of the sinners. What in the world's going on here? And, and yet he's really genuine about that because the older he grows, the older we grow, the, the more we begin to see these things. Now listen, our, our Savior in his life and his death models this posture of humility for us, right? Um, if you have your Bible, flip over to Philippians 2 real quick. Um, and we're going to be there for just a minute. Because here we're, we're being encouraged, right, to, to live with humility. And I want you to notice the way it points to Jesus. Starting in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in, born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name." I think the first thing you see is the last thing we saw in that passage, right? That Jesus humbles himself and his father exalts him. That's what Jesus is teaching us right here, right? We, we, we learn also here that we are to, to be humble. We learn that we're to consider others as more important than ourselves. But did you catch what verse 5 says? It's so easy to go over that. If you still got it there, look at that. This is pretty big. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're united with Christ through faith, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And thus, this mindset of humility, it's already yours. It is. And you see, while humility is a a work of the Spirit, it really is something that the Spirit does in our life. Um, Listen, Jerry Bridges puts this clearly, the point, better than I can make it. He says, the Spirit does not make us humble. He enables us to humble ourselves in difficult situations. See, the Holy Spirit enables us to to let someone go before us in line, right? Uh, He gives us strength even to to, uh, contently humble ourselves, to not sing our praises when we find that temptation that we really want to. These people need to know how great I am. The, the, The moment where you can just stay silent for a moment, that's in the strength of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the strength so that we might not push for the places of honor. Now, the basic point of our passage we, we see worded a little different in James 4, 6, which says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you 
take some time on that passage, that little verse later this week on your own at some point, you, you might find it really interesting to think God might oppose you for your pride, but we're not focusing on that this morning. Um, you see, humility, not self-exaltation, is, is the way we are growing closer to the Lord. And, and listen, if we're honest, that's really counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you, you start to think about it, it seems like this. If, if God is high, if God is lifted up and great and wonderful, that, that the way that we get near to God, uh, the way that it, is that we start to, to strive after uh, some sort of perfection. We start to try to show just how great we are. You know, we want to say, hey God, look at ho- how holy my life is. Look how righteous I am. Look at all these good works. I'm kind of like you, God. We can hang out. And Scripture And the gospel and everything that God teaches is the exact opposite of that. That's why J.C. Ryle says, Humility may well be called the queen of the Christian graces. To know our own sinfulness and weakness and to feel our need of Christ is the start of saving religion. And of greater significance than J.C. Ryle are the words that uh, the Lord commands us through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And yes, this exalting, in a sense, might occur in this life in some aspect, but make no mistake, what Jesus is really getting at here in this parable today is is the certainty that God will exalt his humble sons and daughters in the life to come. You see, at the final judgment, we are going to be lifted up, exalted to God. There's a a song I love by a fellow Texan, also a fellow Aggie, which makes him doubly amazing, uh, a guy named Ross King, and the song's called Go Away. And in that song is this line, He says, God gives grace to the humble, and God gives the earth to the meek, and we want to run into the kingdom with our heads held high on our own two feet. Listen, no one comes pridefully to Jesus. No one, right? Our, Our big head won't fit through that narrow door. No one comes pridefully to Jesus. Now, Long before Ross King wrote that song, St. Augustine had this to say. He said it this way. There are humble religious and there are proud religious. The proud ones should not promise themselves the kingdom of God. At the final judgment, there very well may be those who want to hold up their good works as the reason why they belong in the kingdom of God. And, And that is going to be for them a sad day of eschatological humiliation. What we might call just ultimate humiliation. But on that same day, each man and woman and child who believes in Jesus, all who humbly know their sin and who in the power of the Holy Spirit have faith in Jesus Christ, will be lifted up in glory to life in the kingdom, to presence with and among the most highly exalted one ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us seek humility as a way of life. Let our ambition be not on prestige, not on the praise of others, not on the places of honor that we might want to seek after, but on a proper view of ourselves and a proper view of God, leading us into the merciful embrace of our Lord Jesus, who who gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Holy God, you are perfect, and you're not prideful.
We're sinners, truly sinners through and through. So how is it that we are so prone to pride? Well, because we're sinners through and through. Lord, clearly we don't know ourselves well and we don't know you well. Please change that. Make us to know our own hearts and to know you and your infinite perfection so that we will long for the unmerited grace accomplished on the cross by Jesus for us. And Lord, may the Holy Spirit reveal our our daily pride and empower us to seek after humility for our good and for the glory of your name. It's the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.